Hello, my name is David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, Helen and I are talking to the historian Chris Clark about the revolutions of 1848 and what they can teach us about the possibility of real political change. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading review of culture and ideas. And the LRB is returning to first principles with their latest exclusive offer for Talking Politics listeners. Get 12 issues of the magazine for just £12 and they'll also send you one of their surprisingly famous tote bags, acclaimed by the likes of New York Magazine and Vice. Just use the URL mylrb.co.uk slash talkingbag. That's mylrb.co.uk slash talking bag. We recorded this conversation with Chris Clark a week ago. We're talking about 1848 because we've all been struck by how often these revolutions, which might seem a bit obscure and distant, come up in contemporary political arguments, sometimes as an example of how revolutions don't work. These are the great revolutionary failures. And sometimes as an example of the possibility, at least, of peaceful political change or political change where parliamentary and street politics come together. So we're going to be talking about all of that, failure, change, street politics. But we thought we should start, for all of us, including me, by asking Chris just to sketch out what happened in 1848 and when did it really start. Chris, maybe we should just start with trying to uh, describe what happened in 1848. Is there a kind of kickoff point? We'll get on to whether there's an end point, but did it begin somewhere, sometime? It did. And I guess I guess the most important thing uh, there to note is that it didn't begin in Paris and it didn't actually begin in 1848. Yeah, that's what I thought was the problem. (laughs) Uh, The 1848 revolutions, in fact, kicked off in 1847 with a civil war in Switzerland. Uh, It's a very small civil war on a sort of Swiss model railway scale. I think the total casualties are just over 100 people. But, But still, it was very important. It established the modern Swiss nation state as a result of the civil war that Switzerland got its modern national constitution, which with many amendments, it still has today. So the Switzerland we know was created in 1848 as a result of this war in 1847. And this war, which was a a struggle, a civil strife between liberal and uh, less liberal or more conservative cantons, Uh, there was also a religious dimension, partly Protestant versus Catholic, but also liberal Protestants versus conservative Protestants, and the same on the Catholic side. This civil war also generated a lot of sympathy and interest in the adjacent countries. So Uh, In Austria, there's a lot of reporting in the papers. In southern Germany, um, people crossed the border to fight as as members of various voluntary groups uh, on the side of the liberal cantons. And in France, there was a wave of interest in in the Swiss case. So, for example, the banqueting movement, which was really taking off uh, in 1847, 1848, the winter of that transition from 47 to 48, people started toasting Swiss liberty. La liberté suisse became a big theme. And the idea was the Swiss are doing it. Why don't we do it too? So it starts in Switzerland rather than in Paris. But then there's a a further uprising in Sicily in January 1848 in Messina and Palermo. And then once that gets going in Paris, of course, there's people are taking notice of all these events across the across the continent. And in February, the banqueting movement comes to a kind of culmination and a, and a revolution breaks out in February. And after that, it, it really becomes impossible to narrate because it, that's when the moment of simultaneity begins. And meanwhile, becomes the conjunction of last resort or a first resort, in fact, because everything's happening at the same time. It's like a, a fusion inside a a reactor, everything's just popping. So Vienna, Berlin, Budapest, oh, there isn't Budapest then, but the city of Pest goes off um, and it, it just pops right across the continent. You get these cascades of tumults and uprisings, uh, which last well into the summer. And the, one of the last ones to go up is, is Wallachia in the area we now call Romania, which rises in the summer. And so the result is a, a kind of curious narrative structure once that starts. You have the spring revolutions in which liberals and radicals fight together. Radicals are mainly on the barricades, and in many cases, it's working class people, artisans, uh, apprentices, those sorts of people. And then in the summer, the liberal and the radical wings of the revolution wind up uh, at odds with each other and you have some very bitter collisions, the worst being the the so-called June days in Paris, where the right wing of the new Republican order closes down the left wing version of the revolution in an extremely violent uh, repression in Paris, which kills around about 3,000, possibly more 
people. And so in summer, the, the kind of beautiful dream of, of spring comes undone. And then in the autumn, two things happen. The, the counter-revolution begins in earnest, and in lots of places, the revolution is simply shut down. In Prussia, for example, the, the parliament is told to pack its bags and go home. In the Austrian Empire, there's a major uprising in Vienna, and after that is defeated, the parliament is moved off out of Vienna to a place called Kremsia, or Kromerzij, in now in the Czech Republic, where they sort of continue to exist as a kind of rump until they too are shut down. So in many places, the revolution is shut down. But at the same time, uh, the left... The, the, which had been, you know, had taken such a hit in the summer, revives and launches what I think of as kind of Revolution 2.0, which is the, the second wave, far more coherent in its ideology, a sort of social democratic revolution, far better networked and involving far larger organizations, but concentrated in different places from the original revolution. So the Revolution 2.0 is no longer centered in places like Paris and Berlin. It's in the south and west of France or in the southern states of Germany, Baden and Württemberg in particular, in the Rhineland, and in central and northern Italy rather than in the south as it had been in 1848. So that you have these two things. And then finally, in the summer of 1849, the counter-revolution gets its act together and shuts down these sort of second wave revolutions wherever they've occurred. And after that, it's the peace of the, of the cemetery. I wonder whether we could um, tell the story again in terms of a, a, a narrative, and this time in terms of how it turns out, in terms of the national issues. So both in the Austrian Empire, the Hungarian uprising and what happens to that, uh, but also what happens in terms of the liberals in Germany who see this as a moment where a united Germany could be created, where a German state could be created. Yes. For a lot of people caught up in this revolution, the question posed by it isn't simply a question about constitutions and social order. It's also a question about nation. And that's particularly the case where there is a, a big mismatch between the sort of map of ethnic settlement and the political map we, that we can see in an atlas of that era. So the Germans, for example, are increasingly feel themselves to be a nation of some kind. Um, and the idea of a German nation has been around for a very long time, back into the early modern period, and even before, in fact. They are divided into 39 states, and some of them very, very small. And in, in Austria, it's the opposite problem. They have lots of different nations, which all put together compose this multi-ethnic entity called the Austrian Empire. So in both those cases, you have integrative and disintegrative nationalisms. And people, uh, liberals and, and radicals alike, are looking for a national solution to their problems. In Hungary in particular, where there's a particularly strong and well-networked national movement, this introduces a, a completely fresh dynamic into the revolution as the Hungarians fight to pull away from the authority of Vienna. And um, that leads to one of the sort of largest you know, military campaigns of, and most complex military campaigns of the revolutionary period. The Hungarians, they declare their own independence. They depose the Habsburg monarchy, which is a very radical thing to do in the, in the context of 1848-49. And they fight not just against the Austrians, but against a range of other nationalities, which have been awakened, have been sort of triggered into mobilization by the prospect of a Magyar, a Hungarian nation state in the heart of Europe, which they don't want to see because they realize there will be ethnic minorities within that state. And I'm talking here about Slovaks, Croats, Serbs, and most importantly, well, Croats are the most important ones. They actually run a huge military operation under the under the uh, command of their leader, Banja Lacic. And so they fight the Hungarians as allies of the Austrians. And at the same time, then, in the spring and summer of 1849, the Russians come in to help the Austrians mop up the revolution in Hungary. So this is a revolution about political and social order, but it's also a revolution about national order. Chris, one of the reasons we want to talk about this is because 1848, it does have a particular resonance in the 21st century. It's striking how often people reach back to it. And there are a few ways in which we might cash that out. But one is, and you, you use these words in describing it in the first narrative you just gave us, the simultaneity of it, the kind of cascade effect. Cascade is a word that's very 21st century and it's one mm. of cascades of information and so on. Once it got going, one of the extraordinary features of it is the speed with which it spread. And part of that presumably is because, though we might think of the middle of the 19th century as a pretty disconnected time where transport was hard and you know, it took a while for people and ideas to travel. Actually, it was quicker than we realised. But also, presumably, there have been people who have looked to find overarching background explanations for this as where everywhere was ripe. And the parallels often drawn with the Arab Spring in 1848, and the same thing happened with the Arab Spring, people trying to find a kind of climate change explanation, a drought, a food shortage explanation. 
do either of those stand up? And is is it actually the case that in 1848 information travelled much faster than we thought, or should we be looking for a holistic explanation? We do need a big explanation for a big phenomenon. I mean, the, the explanation should fit the phenomenon. And we do have uh, quite a few, actually. I mean, it's not difficult to to think of reasons why, uh, of things that made this possible. And the most important is a continent-wide socioeconomic crisis, which really bites into people's incomes and sense of well-being and pushes many Europeans into a kind of subsistence crisis. And it's an interesting and quite complex one. It starts in 1845-46 with an agrarian crisis, and even that crisis is quite complex. It involves the potato blight, which of course in Ireland leads to a mass death of around an eighth of the population. But in many other places too, um, the potato blight plus um, very bad grain harvests creates massive price shocks, you know, making food much more expensive for people who spend most of their money on food. I mean, this is a, a world where the poorer spend perhaps a third or a half of what they earn, sometimes more, on food for their for themselves and for their, their families. So coming into 1847, that becomes a less good explanation because the harvest is better in 1847. But what in the meanwhile has happened is that this agrarian crisis has sort of splashed over into the business and manufacturing sectors. And it's caused a downturn um, in business, downturn in the volume of trade, a collapse in consumer and, and production confidence. And the result of that is, of course, waves of people being laid off. I mean, everybody in the 19th century is on a zero-hour contract, right? So um, people are told, linen workers and silk weavers and so on are told, I'm sorry, there's just that nobody's ordering ball gowns this season. We've had no orders from Paris at all. Come back in, in October, and we'll see if there's anything for you. You have a lot of people angry, um, disturbed, worrying that they're about to lose their work. That's what explains, I think, the, the presence on the barricades of so many apprentices, uh, journeymen, craftsmen in all kinds of different trades. They're there because, because they're they're the ones whose, whose livelihoods are, are most directly threatened by this second phase of the socioeconomic crisis of 47, 48. And we have to bear in mind that 1848 comes at the end of a long period of quite solid demographic growth. And this demographic growth has supercharged parts of the economy uh, in ways which are not good for the welfare of all. So you get, for example, a great rise in the number of, of apprentices and people waiting for workshops and masterships and so on in the trades, not a corresponding rise in the number of places available for masters and for people to actually run workshops. And so you have too many young men chasing too few secure jobs. That's one of the core problems. There's a, a cultural dimension to this as well, and it connects with this question of how joined up Europe was in 1848. And that is the question sometimes asked um, by historians, uh, by today's historians, you know, where did it start? Did it start in Paris or did it start in Palermo and Sicily and so on? And the answer is that these questions don't make very much sense because, you know, it's actually a joined up system. And if you look at the press, uh, whether it's in Paris or Palermo or even the Austrian press, which is operating under the constraints of censorship, or even the tiny Finnish press in Helsinki, in uh, deep in the, in, the, in the Grand Duchy of Finland, which at that time was part of the Russian Empire, they're all reporting these European events. So there is a very remarkable European horizon to the news reportage of 1847-48. And there's a deep interest in what's happening in Switzerland, right across the continent. Great interest in Sicily, and then the disturbances occurring in central and northern Italy. And then, of course, Paris uh, happens. But by the time Paris happens, you know, de Tocqueville has already stood up in the uh, Chamber of Deputies and said, you know, the revolution is coming here. If you think it's going to stop at the, at the borders of this country, you've got another thing coming. One of the questions that seems to me, anyway, hard to answer about um, 1848 is it why it doesn't actually spread across the entire continent even if you take like britain and, and russia um, as outliers you still got a country like the netherlands say where nothing really much is going on and if we use the systemic sort of economic explanation which obviously there's a great deal too then you wouldn't exclude britain from that because you know i should say the united kingdom because of the irish issue you know, there's been the, the panic of 1847 that's quite hit badly um, the british economy so there's no sense, I think, in which you would say that the, the structural explanation shouldn't apply to Britain. Indeed, in the sense that it kind of the structural explanation is bound up with, a, I think, what is really a, a Malthusian fear that's sort of hanging over this. Britain could be almost like exhibit A in that sense yeah. of that. So what do we need as a kind of additional explanation that actually can allow us to understand the actual geography of the revolution as it occurred in practice? 
Yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, the, these are the dogs that didn't bark. And when I was at school, and I first studied the 1848 revolutions as a, as a high school student, uh, I found them, well, first of all, I should say, I found them you know, impossibly complex and, and dull. But um, it's only late, more recently that I realized that they're just about, you know, one of the most interesting things that has ever happened in Europe, I think. But, um, but you know, the answer that was given to your question by my teachers was, um, well, Britain didn't need to have a revolution because Britain was already a liberal country. You know, it's like parents who think my my children don't need to rebel against me because I'm already so nice and, and permissive. Um, it doesn't always work out in practice. But the point is that um, the that's that's not a good answer. It is the answer that British people, many British sort of suffisants, you know, self-congratulating Britons gave themselves and they looked at the continent and observed how peaceful things seem to be in Britain. They said, well, that's because we've already accomplished everything that they're striving for and we've done rather well for ourselves, pat ourselves on the back. But... Uh, Europeans saw it differently, and in fact, there's a lot of good reason to think that they were right rather than the British. Namely, they recognised that one reason that the British had got away um, with it was that they, the country was so efficiently policed. Britain was also able to call upon, you know, the special constables, a force sometimes ridiculed in the literature, but uh, in fact, a, a huge example of civilian um, voluntary policing. Tens of thousands of special constables were called out whenever there was a threat, for example, from the Chartists. And um, in the case of Ireland, uh, the Prussians looked on with envy at the Irish constabulary, which they they saw as the toughest and best paramilitary policing unit anywhere in Europe. And in the summer of 1848, they sent a fact-finding mission to Ireland to learn from the British how you police in a really rigorous and um, muscular way uh, a potentially very restless population. So one of the main reasons that Britain didn't see revolution in this period is that there was highly efficient police coverage. Another reason is that um, Britain was able to outsource some of its difficulties, partly by transporting people who were, you know, difficult individuals from places like Ireland to places like Australia, for example. And this didn't go unnoticed by the Australian authorities, who in 1848 said, well, you know, there's a marvellous passage actually in the Sydney Morning Herald where the editors of the paper say, if, if you're wondering why it is that, you know, the mother country is so quiet and, and things are so, have gone so disastrously wrong in places like France, well, the reason is they've sent all their troublemakers here, right? That's what colonies seem to be for, right? We, we seem to be a kind of receptacle for anybody that is not welcome in, in the motherland. So, um, and in fact, 1848 triggered an anti an anti-transportation movement in both Australia and South Africa, which is itself of quite some, some consequence. So that's another reason why the British were able to deal with it. And the third one is one that Miles Taylor drew attention to a long time ago, which was that um, the British were able, through their imperial economy, as it were, to outsource some of the price shock problems by, for example, you know, they could secure staples like sugar, on a preferential basis, using the, their access to sugar markets worldwide, and in that way, help the sort of working classes of Britain across the subsistence crisis of 1847-48. For that reason, as you said, people were very conscious that there was a European dimension to this, but there was also a, a global dimension to it. The, the consequences spread transatlantically, they spread to Australia, South Africa. But was there a self-consciousness about the Europeanness of this? Um, particularly continental Europe. So was Absolutely. there an idea of Europe emerging from this? Because these were also deeply national, as you said, and sometimes nationalistic phenomena. But 1848 was, these are the European revolutions. Well, they are, absolutely. And I mean, I think this is one of the central problems for 1840 as, as an object of historical contemplation, is that the story was subsequently sort of stolen by the nation states. So the the power of nation as a way of thinking about the past and indeed about the present in Europe after 1848, in the, in the, especially in the late 19th and 20th centuries, became a filter through which the events of 1848 was read. And what that meant were read. And what that meant was that the European dimension sort of slipped out of view. And instead, you had an Italian 1848, the struggle to build the modern Italian nation state, the struggle to create modern Hungary, the struggle to modernize France, uh, and so on. They became, they became a set of parallel national narratives. But in 1848, they were not experienced as parallel national narratives. They were experienced very much as part of a European experience. And people referred to Europe all the time. They said things like, you know, the eyes of Europe are upon us. It's the kind of phrase you find everywhere from Wallachia to Stockholm to, you know, wherever you look. So there is a generally European thing. And just, and just coming back to this question of the areas where, where you didn't actually have a violent tumult or a violent over overthrow of the of the structures of power. Well, uh, Helen mentioned the example of the Netherlands. But, you know, the, in the, what happens in the Netherlands is that 
some very smart and wily ministers managed to maneuver the king into a, a new constitutional settlement preemptively in order to avoid the troubles that they can see brewing elsewhere in Europe. The same thing happens in Belgium. So these places do have revolutions. Denmark, which doesn't have a, a violent revolution, not, nevertheless does have a constitutional experience, a constitutional transformation in the sense that it ceases to be an absolute monarchy, which is what it had been, and becomes a constitutional, indeed a parliamentary monarchy. So it completely transforms its character as a result of this European horizon of revolutionary expectation. The same thing happens in Piedmont, where a new statute, a new the first constitution of Piedmont is issued, of the Piedmont Sardinia, by the king, Charles Albert, in March, early in March 1848, before the revolution is any kind of revolution has broken out in Turin or anywhere else in Piedmont, uh, because they know it's coming. So, you know, it's not that revolutions happen in some places and simply don't happen in others. It's that in some states, they manage to dodge the violent manifestations of revolution by preemptively conceding um, demands that they expect revolutionaries will make if they if they don't concede them first. Isn't there, though, Chris, uh, some good reasons for the old narrative, if we think about it in terms of the medium term, shall we say, consequences of what happened in 1848, if we skip on for another 30 years or so, we're going to see out of it a, like a Prussian-led German state. We're going to see the, the dual monarchy uh, in Austria-Hungary. So Hungary gets some kind of, even though it's so badly defeated in 1849, it's going to get a privileged position in the uh, Austrian Empire by um, 1867 and the uprisings in Italy are going to lay the foundations for the creation of the Italian state. And can you argue as well that actually, if in some sense, a really important part of this story is what happens in Austria, and we skip even further forward and we see kind of that, that idea of Habsburg, Austria as some kind of like prototype after the First World War of an ideal of Europe. The fact that there were these nationalist uprisings against the whole idea of Austria and the Austrian crown lands, etc., the Habsburgs, isn't that pretty consequential in terms of like that this is an idea of a nation state Europe rather than an idea of a unified Europe? Yes, it is consequential. And, and, and you know, a lot of liberals blend their interest in the nation with their radical concerns about political order. For example, the far left in Germany, the sort of hard radical left, uh, embraces the idea of a republican nation, right? You, you'll sweep away all the monarchs and you'll have a a German Republic with a, a president modeled on the United States, for example. So in many cases, kind of nationally imagined futures blended with um, ideas about political transformation. I agree with you. I mean, the, the without 1848, you can't explain why, for example, an Italian nation state emerges in 1859 and why, why that becomes possible. And you can't explain why um, a German nation state emerges between you know, 1864 and 1871. These stories don't make any sense without that. But the, the problem is that, you know, if you think about how the Italian nation state came about, it came about through a complex combination of, you know, yes, there was a certain amount of, you know, mass mobilization in the South, in particular, around a figure like Garibaldi, for example. And in the North, it's very much about the geopolitical maneuvering of, of the Piedmontese monarchy. And in Germany, you know, the whole process is led by Prussia and by the clever statesmanship of someone like Bismarck. Of course, Bismarck operates in a hybrid mode, just as the Italian revolution, the Italian national nation-building process does. A hybrid mode in the sense that he works with a combination of old-style diplomatic, military, and dynastic techniques on the one hand, and the manipulation of the press and public opinion on the other. But the fact remains that in both cases, nationalism is still really the emotional property of quite a small elite. It's not something that moves the great what used to be called the most numerous classes. There are still lots of question marks about what most Italian peasants felt about the nation state, for example. And one of the most striking things about the aftermath of the creation of that Italian state is that it triggers a civil war within Italy, an extremely deadly and violent civil war, which lasts for a very long time, in which various uh, indigenous populations fight against the new national order and are suppressed by it. I, I suppose I want to push a little bit away from this idea of, which is so present in the term risorgimento, that, that there's a kind of resurging of something that's already there, and a nation, a sleeping nation is awakened and acquires political shape. It's not as quite, not quite as straightforward as that. And a lot of people still have to be, you know, as Eugene Weber put it many, many years ago, peasants still have to be turned into Frenchmen and women. So important as that national story is, for, especially for making sense of what happens after 1848, it needs to be balanced with the recognition that, you know, the nation is something which moves some people much more than others. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. 
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com One of the ways you could say that 1848 is an outlier in the history of revolution is, relatively speaking, the absence of war. So we talk about the First World War, and then we talk about this thing called the Russian Revolution, but they are the completely inextricably bound up together. And on the whole, the great revolutions cannot be explained without the wars that either precede them or follow from them. I mean, you, you know, the things that follow from them don't explain them, but they are bound up together. And 1848, so it wasn't peaceful because, as you've already hinted, maybe we should say more about this. I mean, it was extraordinarily violent, much of it. And so if one of the lessons for the 21st century from 1848 is the possibility of peaceful but really meaningful political change, it depends what you mean by peace. So if peace means the absence of violence, this is not our model. But if peace means the absence of war, is that something that does mark it out as a revolutionary moment? It is something that marks out 1848. I mean, the event that people had in the backs of their heads, it was sort of flickering like an old movie, and they were all aware of it, and there's endless evidence of this, is the great French Revolution, and it's and it's um, Jacobin or radical, and then Napoleonic aftermaths. So the, the revolution that unfolded between 1789 and then took more radical form in the early 1790s, unleashed a, a European war, in the um, right to, which lasted, of course, if you count Napoleon in, right down to 1815. All of that is in the backs of people's heads, and they're, and they're aware that this is different. And in fact, liberals and radicals alike say on many occasions, you know, we're not going to repeat the mistakes of that earlier era. We don't need this to be an era of violent, enormous wars and all this kind of thing. Uh, and they say that, we, you know, we can do this peacefully. It can, we can achieve social change by peaceful means. And it's interesting how widespread this view is on the left. I mean, the, the people that we now think of as socialists, the, the term socialism is, isn't really very helpful for what's going on in the 1830s and 40s. But a lot of them, and a lot of people in general, remember the violence of the of the French Revolution. And they're very consciously, they consciously turn away from that and say, you know, we can find a more uh, managed uh, transit out of the, the currently clearly corrupt and problematic structures that we have and, and something better. So people are thinking about this. It's very much part of their part of their calculus. That, it, of course, it does make a difference. That there is that, that there is not this massive concatenation of, of global war that we see in the period of the revolutionary Napoleonic wars, which are truly a global conflagration. We don't have that, and what that means is that the ideas of eighteen forty eight have to travel in civilian clothes, as it were, and it, it also means that um, they, they're often brought not. Um, on the ends of the of, of foreigners' bayonets, but they percolate through the liberal and radical elites of the societies where they take root. They become part of complicated, ramified conversations. There's a complexity, a sort of civil complexity to the transit of revolutionary ideas in 1848 that you don't see in the earlier period because these societies have just become more complex. There are more newspapers, more people who read them, more points of view, and uh, it's just a more sophisticated setting. So the whole thing is you know, uh, the, it's a much more complex echo chamber in which ideas are being sifted over, cut into pieces and recombined through the civil societies of, of all the of all the countries that are caught up in this in this revolt. And that makes a, a, a big difference, I think. But then when, when the bloodletting happens, as it does increasingly from the summer, are these hopes of peace, relatively speaking, sort of shattered? I mean, do people suddenly think, well, that was a nice idea of the spring, but now mm. you know, people are coming in from the countryside and butchering people at the barricades. This is a more familiar pattern. Well, this is a really interesting question, actually, is, um, you know, if one asks oneself, when does the revolution end? Well, let's put it this way. If, if one asks the contemporaries, the participants, when did they think the revolution ended? Well, they come out oh, virtually every every day of 1848 is identified as the end of the revolution by somebody. Um, because for people in the far left, when they see how the liberals, the more moderate liberals, have 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 seized the reins and taken control of the situation, they feel that's the end of their hopes for something more far-reaching. And the same happens after the summer repressions in Paris and something similar happens in Berlin. Um, so there are, there, there are multiple revolutions and some of them, and they don't end at the same time. That's one of the interesting questions, one of the interesting features of 1848. 1848 is punctuated with people throwing their hands up in the air and saying, well, we did, we did our best, but it didn't work. But in fact, you know, what actually happens, what, and this is part of the a story that's less well 
told, I think about 1848, or less well understood, is that a lot of people caught up in the revolutionary tumult subsequently think, well, the objectives are good, but this means of achieving them hasn't been terribly good, hasn't been terribly effective. And so they go through what in the you know, 1960s and 70s was called the, a long march through the institutions. And it's astonishing how many people we find who previously have quite good revolutionary credentials because they're radicals or Democrats of some kind. We later find them running you know, police ministries or working for the government in all sorts of different roles, um, running, uh, you know, managing a central statistics office or uh, that sort of thing. So there are people who take the energy of the revolution and channel it into you know, governmental and technocratic solutions after 1848. So for them, it's not really a failure. It's a sort of transition to revolution by different means. And one person who actually, although in many ways is a rather, a rather sort of um, not a particularly attractive character, is you know, Louis Napoleon or Napoleon III. He had published a book in the 1830s, which is called Les Idées Napoléoniennes, Napoleonic Ideas, in which um, he had actually said, look, you know, um, what, what we want to do is actually to not to abolish the revolution, not to stop the revolution. He was referring to the Great Revolution in France. We want to channel it into government. And that is indeed what he did after 1849, he, and when he, of course, became emperor through a coup d'etat. He did do that to some extent, and it happened in many other states as well. On that, it's important, isn't it, to say that actually, if you just think of it as a rebellion and a revolution against the French monarchy, that it's actually successful. France is the one place where a fundamental change of constitutional regime actually takes place, and, and then well, it just goes off in this different direction. The Piedmontese monarchy had been an absolute monarchy in which the king just said what he wanted. And then in March, suddenly they have a constitution. And when you get a constitution, that's not a trivial change because then you, once you get the constitution means you, well, it doesn't necessarily mean it, but in this case, it did mean you had, it stipulated there must be elections, there must be an, an assembly. And the assembly, if the assembly has to be dissolved, it has to be re-elected within a certain time. So that whole machinery of representation is put into place through these new constitutional orders. Prussia also gets its first constitution ever. It's not the constitution radicals would have liked. It's a rather conservative constitution, but it is still a constitution. It means a parliament. It means the public coverage of parliamentary debates. Uh, these are fundamental points of departure, which are transformations, even if they're not, they don't produce something as deeply different as the post-revolutionary regime in France. Can I ask a different question, Chris, which is to sort of get out of Europe for a moment in the sense on whether you see um, what happens in, in Europe in 1848 as the beginning of a kind of maybe 10, 15 year period where actually we see a whole set of like pretty significant rebellions. So I'm thinking of like the Taiping Rebellion in um, China, the Great Indian Rebellion, 1857, even you could even say perhaps the Southern Rebellion against the federal government, the attempt at secession in the United States. Is there something about the middle of the 19th century in a more global sense that encourages these rebellions? That's a very interesting question. I'm not sure I have a very good answer to it. I mean, the, the, the link with Taiping is, um, is the kind of El Dorado of the 19th century historians. And uh, Jürgen Osterhammer, because Taiping is just an, an event on such an, a momentous scale, just eye-wateringly huge, involving many tens of millions of dead. And, I mean, it really knocks 1848 into a cocked hat. Uh, and it would be great to find some kind of, you know, some evidence that these are cognate uh, revolutions or that there's some linkage in one direction or the other. Uh, unfortunately, nobody's really found a persuasive linkage of that kind, although it's clear that, you know, um, these revolutions involve or these these upheavals involve parallel problems you know the rise of states questions about how the about the authority of states how they should be limited you know the problem about the inter the integrity of national territory these kinds of things are present in a lot of these different uh, conflicts um i think 1848 is is cognate with them it doesn't trigger them it's just part of that larger process of reshuffling that's going on in the mid in the mid century. There's a lot of um, stuff happening in this Praia revolt in Brazil, which had already been going on for some while and continues after 1848. And there are tumults in other parts of Latin America. So there's is a global dimension to this moment. But I must say, I'm, I don't feel very well equipped to think about what it is that explains all of those tumults. There's a different question about the international dimension of this. And I was reading something that you wrote, Chris, about 1848. I was struck by this. I hadn't kind of thought of this before. So I have in the back of my mind that perhaps naive view that 
certainly through the rest of the 19th century into the 20th century, revolutionaries are the internationalists, you know, Marxism and socialism and the international. And there is an ideal that, and maybe 1848 is in the background of this, that you get these cascade effects and all it will take, and people still believe it today, all it will take is for it to kick off somewhere. And as Paul Mason would say, then it will be kicking off everywhere. And revolutions spread across borders. And then maybe there is a class dimension to it. That might be the hope or the fear. And that therefore class solidarity cuts across international difference. And that the counter-revolution tends to be the nationalistic moment. And counter-revolutions are when nation states, forces within nations use borders and their powers to suppress it. And yet, you could say in 1848, the opposite happened. Maybe not so much that the Revolution itself was nationalistic, though, as Helen suggested, you know, you can't explain it without those strains running through it. But counter-revolution is international for the obvious reason that the counter-revolutionaries have better connections. You know, there, there, are, there are better links of money and power. There's an establishment there. There's a sort of background shadow international establishment. And that one of the reasons counter-revolution is often so effective is that it can be mobilized across borders. And 1848 does seem to fit with that. Um, It seems to suggest a different model or a different way of understanding the national and the international and how it relates to the revolution and the counter-revolution. The forces of counter-revolution, which in many cases are the forces of monarchy in most of the European continent. um, And money as well. And and money, international capital and so on. But um, you know what? What really matters about the counter-revolution it's, is its capacity to uh, to combine forces, um, meaning military forces, and to to project power uh, in a sort of concerted way. And uh, they've been doing that for a very long time. I mean, this is the Europe has an order. There's a thing called the European order, which which conservative statesmen are constantly referring to, which has to do with the order of 1815, the order created in the, the peace treaties of Vienna. And in many ways, you know, 1848 is a kind of one of the workings out of the consequences of the Vienna Peace Treaties, and that applies, among other things, to the sort of national movements that Helen was talking about, coming to terms with the or trying to contest or challenge that order. Among the monarchical executives, there is a shared commitment to restoring that order, and there's also a shared dislike of revolutionary turmoil. And um, in fact, the counter-revolution operates very efficiently against the revolution once it gets going. I mean, there's a big difference between counter-revolution and revolution. That is that revolutions, by and large, are not planned. The period of the 1830s and 40s, during that period, the, the police authorities had all been watching, you know, conspiratorial groups, uh, try infiltrating them with spies, you know, imprisoning them, persecuting them, occasional executions and, and so on, uh, because they thought that the next revolution would happen as a result of a conspiracy, that it would be a well-planned revolution of the type that Auguste Blanqui was rumoured to be planning in France. But in fact, when the revolution happened, it wasn't like that at all. It was a completely unplanned sort of societal or pan-societal tsunami uh, involving many, many different interests. For example, the, the opening weeks of the revolution see a, a wave of violence against Jews and Jewish property, which are very difficult to slot into any kind of revolutionary narrative. And if one thinks about that sort of panorama of spontaneity and, and you know, of revolutionaries who actually, they hadn't made the revolution, they, they become revolutionaries as a result of the revolution. They inherit the, a revolutionary situation, which they then try and manage and lead. If one looks at that sort of panorama of you know, unexpected inheritors of, of, of tumult, on the one hand, and you look at counter-revolution on the other, then you see the fundamental difference is that the counter-revolutionaries can bide their time. They can afford to sit and wait until the time is ripe. And what happens in 1848 is that a lot of uh, a lot of these monarchical executives, especially in Central Europe, the, in, in the Austrian Empire, in Prussia, and in some of the Italian states, they keep their powder dry. They still, after all, have a military organizations whose power is unmatched by any civilian uh, voluntary force. And um, they wait until the moment is right. And for some of them, that's autumn. And for the others, it's, you know, um, spring or, or summer of the following year. And when the time comes, they work they work together very efficiently. And that one example is the Russians coming in to, to save the, um, the Austrian situation in Hungary. Uh, they come in th- having suppressed the revolution in Wallachia. They, uh, around Bucharest, they come into, into Transylvania and Hungary and, and help the Austrians. But the Prussians also help in the southwest of Germany. They, they mop up the revolution in the, in the southern states. And this kind of thing happens, you know, wherever we look. So the counter-revolution does respond in a more international way. And liberals recognize this and they see that this is a problem. In fact, they've been thinking about this for a long time, that you need, if you want to be serious about establishing the liberal order as an international order, you need a liberal geopolitics. 
And you need liberal states to operate as a kind of, by liberal I mean constitutional states with representative organs and so on. They need to operate it as a phalanx together. They can't, you can't simply have isolated tumults here, there and everywhere. One last point about this. The reason, the, one of the reasons the liberal international is so full of confidence, or the radical and liberal internationals are so full of confidence in the spring and early summer of 1848, is that they expect that France and Britain will become active as great powers on the side of the revolution. Well, France turns out to be a terrible disappointment because having made noises in that direction, Lamartine then changes his mind and says France will renounce any war which doesn't concern its own interests and we're not going to go and, and help all kinds of Don Quixotes all over the continent. And the British, having initially supported the revolution, as they do, for example, in Sicily, where the British consul plays a very important role and British Navy occupies the waters off Palermo and also off Naples, uh, making, you know, impeding the efforts of the King of Naples to suppress the revolution in his own state, the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies, having initially, um, you know, seemed to be a very helpful presence in revolutionary affairs, the British pull back. They don't want to risk a conflict with Russia over these issues. And they allow the Russians to go into Hungary without, they don't like it, but they think, well, we can, we can live with that. So one of the key points about the counter-revolution is that the liberal international doesn't work because the, the liberal great powers don't support the revolution. At least they don't support it to the hilt. Whereas the conservative great powers do support the counter-revolution. They do so with men and money in a way that the, the liberal powers don't. Couldn't you argue, though, Chris, that this really is the last throes, though, of that counter-revolutionary order in the geopolitical sense mm. from 1815? That concert of Europe is never going to be act, act together again in any sense. No. So that if we go on to the, you know, the 1850s, we're going to have you know, like Britain and Russia in war in Crimea. Absolutely. Um, Russia and Austria are certainly never going to ally, but anything again, you know, by the 1914, they're going to be at war with each other. So I think you could just as well say that this is the death throes of that sort of essentially counter-revolutionary settlement of 1815, that the counter-revolutionary powers will never get their acts together again in terms of being able to stop change. Yes, it's, it's interesting that that's a really interesting observation because I think it's absolutely right that the Crimean War is going to happen. And actually the Crimean War is born, among other things, out of deepening British concern about the Danube and the Black Sea. Uh, which have to do with the Russian intervention in Wallachia and, and the intervention into Transylvania and so on. And of course, as you say, Russia and Austria will not make common cause again. The reason being that the Austrians are on the wrong side in the Crimean War. And that as a result, the Prussians are able to unify Germany against Austria, defeat Austria in a massive military confrontation in 1866 without the Russians stepping in to prevent it. Marx was a very astute commentator on these things and saw that everything really depended on whether the Tsar acted or not. And after the Crimea, he was not willing to act to pull Austria's chestnuts out of the fire, as historians used to say. And so it is the end. It's the end for this counter-revolutionary order. It's also, in a way, a kind of ending for this liberal constitutional order as well. Of course, not in the sense that the order doesn't survive. It's now the dominant order in the West, what we call the Western world. But what's interesting is that that struggle for constitutions, which produces an extraordinary sort of bulk spawning of constitutions. I mean, I haven't counted them, but dozens of new constitutions are drafted during this, this revolutionary episode. And in a way, that kind of mass proliferation of constitutions ends up being a sort of a moment both of accomplishment and of fulfillment and of exhaustion. And so in the future, there won't be, it won't be a struggle for constitutions anymore. The political struggle will be about all sorts of other things, rights and the right to labor and the organization of labor and the relationship between labor and capital, the franchise and women and other forms of enfranchisement. But it's not going to be about the struggle for a constitution. Those days are over. And this is, there's a one commentator, Lorenz von Stein, who wrote very interestingly, he said that, you know, that, that 1848 marked the, what he called the end of the age of constitution and the beginning of the age of administration. And I think there's something in that. There are lots of possible parallels with now. I don't want to make them too heavy handed, but we are living through an age where people are thinking about where the possibility of significant political change lies. And one of the reasons 1848 is so resonant is that it's a revolution of legislatures, of you know, representative government is one of the radical revolutionary ideas. It's the legislatures, the assemblies against the executives. And it's also a street politics. It's a direct action revolution. It involves direct confrontation. The way I'm going to put this is too simplistic, but you know, the hope of the spring is that these two things might go together, liberal and radical, but also serious institutional reform could go along with and feed off the energy of street politics. These things then come into conflict with each other. 
There's then, as you said, both counter-revolution and also a renewed attempt, a 2.0 attempt to radicalise the revolution. But in the end, what seems to win is the institutional side of the revolution. So even if it's not constitutions, it is institutions and administration and eventually a kind of professionalization of politics too. Now we're living at a time where people wonder what is the relationship between institutional reform and the possibility of radical institutional reform, you know, getting a politics that's better suited institutionally to the challenges we face, and the energy of direct political action. The lesson of 1848, in, in a sense, I suppose, is that the institutions win. Is, is there anything <laughs> timeless about that lesson? Well, it's interesting you say that because I, I was watching, like many other people, I was watching those scenes during the recent climate conference in Glasgow where they kind of cut from scenes inside the conference to Greta Thunberg standing outside surrounded by uh, activists and saying, you know, inside it's all blah, blah, blah. That's not how uh, leadership looks. This is how leadership looks. And she pointed at this you know, vast crowd of people. And I found myself thinking, but is that actually true? Is that what it does leadership look like a large crowd of people outside a building. And I think probably it doesn't, that when you, if you do want to lead a complex process, you are going to need a, a room. So when it's raining, you won't get wet. And you're going to need there to be large tables and people have to sit around the tables and they'll have to bring along dossiers and they'll have to have their experts with them. And they'll have to be, you know, long and careful preparations so that the discussions are about something real and that they make sense and that the solutions that are reached or the compromises that are reached have some kind of traction. Now, the the results of that process in Glasgow were in many ways rather disappointing, but or even very disappointing. But the fact is the process, that's how it's going to look. When they get it right, it will be by that kind of process. It won't be by people forming large gatherings outside buildings. Those gatherings are crucial because they put, bring pressure to bear on those processes that are happening inside the building. And, you know, I think what you say about the tense relationship between Though that sort of pressure of the street and, you know, representative processes of government in 1848, that, that is right at the core of, of what, what this, these revolutions were about, uh, because that the scissors opened between the street, uh, between direct action clubs and mass rallies and street action on the one hand, and chambers and sort of slow deliberative politics of, of representative organs on the other. And I think now we're seeing a similar widening gap. If you think about the, the Occupy movement or, you know, the QAnon shaman roaring freedom in the in the American Congress or the invasion, in fact, of Capitol Hill. For, to me, this all looked like 1848, a rerun of 1848, including the theatricality of it, the, the curious costumes and the, the theatrical behavior, the sort of exaggerated gestures and all this kind of thing. They're all from the world of 1848. People spoke all the time. They used theatrical metaphors to describe these events. So there's a sort of untidiness about 1848, which I think does uh, resonate very much with the situation we're in now, where our slow deliberative politics is coming under pressure. It doesn't always seem to perform to our expectations. So there's there's a lot of uncertainty about how we make the system work. And the QAnon shaman is now in jail. That's also quite 1848. That's also quite 1848. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, we have so we haven't done the Arab Spring or Velvet Revolution. We would probably remember this. So around the time of the what was called then the the Arab Spring, but the cascading series of popular movements that took place in in North Africa and parts of the Middle East. There was a question about what revolution this should be compared to. Was this 1989? Was it 1917? Was it 1968? But 1848 was probably the answer that most people alighted on. And then as those movements petered out, the counter-revolution got underway and organized itself. There was also sort of the thought that, well, there's some hope here, which is because 1848 looked like a failure, but in the long run, it was the event that really shaped Europe and European politics and then eventually global politics through the rest of the 19th century. And therefore, maybe there's something similar will be happening in, in North Africa and the Middle East. And you might say it's still too early to say the Velvet Revolutions, the 1989 revolutions also sometimes compared to because they were relatively speaking peaceful, 1848. But as you've described it, Chris, 1848 feels like it was very much its own thing. And maybe we overdo it. There's something about it that pulls people in. There's something mm. about it you can find in it both hope and despair when you're looking for them you can you know, as you said almost for every day of the revolution there were people who were saying it was over yeah. so as a historical example you can look to it and you can probably find in it what you want to find doom hope transformation stasis counter-revolution and so on do you think we overdo it is there something about these revolutions that makes them too easy i find your characterization of the of the problem of that linkage very suggestive actually and interesting because you know on the one hand yes they, they offer everything and therefore perhaps not very much because they're they're so sort of multifaceted and polyvocal but 
Isn't that what makes them like now? It seems to me that one of the things that is really interesting about 1848, and contemporaries felt this too, was the difficulty of working out the direction of travel. There seem to be so many different vectors of change. People seem to be pressing for so many different things. And conflicts were so complexly structured. And it was very hard just even to work out what was going on. And contemporaries refer to this all the time, that they're overwhelmed by the amount and complexity of the information they're having to process. And I think that that's you know, not unlike our current situation. It, of course, it means on the one hand that we, can't, we should be wary of making direct connections but on the other hand, you know, there, there obviously are the ways in which, if you think about, for example, in 1848, the interaction between the relations between states, conflicts between states and conflicts within states, between civil tumult and international geopolitical conflict. Well, we've, we see that everywhere in the world now um, because of, you know, so-called humanitarian interventions and um, the role of you know, the great powers, for example, in Syria or Iraq over the last 10, 20 years, where you had, you know, or, or for that matter, the Ukrainian crisis, where you have, you know, a, a domestic or civil dimension to the tumult, but also a geopolitical one. It's very hard to extricate them from each other, to pull them apart. And if you th- think of something like the Tahrir Square movement in, in Egypt, uh, there are lots of parallels there with 1848. The presence, for example, in the square of all kinds of representatives of all kinds of interests who clearly would, didn't want the same thing. And had they had the chance to sort of realize their, their visions, you would have had a sort of struggle among them to, to work out whose was going to prevail. And I remember noticing this song, which was very widely sung in Egypt and, uh, during the Tahrir moment and, and became the sort of the, the soundtrack of the Tahrir revolution. And it was, it starts, Ya Ya Al Zaman. It's addressed to the square, the Tahrir square, and it says, O square, O square, where have you been all this time? You switched on the light, you healed a broken people. And it's about how space, how an urban space can become a kind of healing, energetic space for a, for a nation which is, which has lost its way. And that, absolutely resonates with 1848 if you think about the importance of squares and you know um, central plazas and so on in the cities of 1848 they are full of these kinds of spaces of transformation the problem with 1848 isn't that it doesn't have any lessons it's that it's got too many and it's telling us lots of different things about lots of different topics and we just have to attend to that flux and nuance in its meaning We will tweet the link to Chris Clark's lecture and essay about the 1848 revolutions that appeared in the LRB, and also the link to an episode that I recorded with the historian Linda Colley, in which we talked about something that we just discussed there, the role of constitutions and the spread of constitutions in 19th century politics and politics today. We've got one more episode this year, and it's just going to be me and Helen. We thought it was time that we tried to catch up with what the hell is going on in British politics. Do join us for that. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. Um, I'm so pleased <clears throat> that we finally got you on talking politics. Chris. Just say that. Yeah, I've been on it before. Have you? Ages yes. ago, quite a few times. Oh, quite Catherine. a few times. Yeah, quite you? a few times. And you were always there, Catherine. I'm. I'm not going to make anything of this. I, I just. I just. You know. Um, you know. Yes. I am going completely mad. Okay. We did one, didn't we? Do one in Chris Bickerton's room. We did. Oh yeah, we did. That's right. I remember that yeah. one. And we oh, also Germany done several. In, we did. We did a Germany, Italy one. We did yeah. Germany oh, one. Oh, that's right. We did straight it's Germany. all coming back to me now. It's all um, coming back to me. Yeah. Helen, focus, Helen and I predict correctly predicted the outcome of the German elections, which wasn't particularly difficult, must be said. <laughs> <laughs> When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.